In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When I was in sixth form, one of my responsibilities was as school librarian, an informative and enriching experience. Forty years later, I became joint guardian of a very much smaller library belonging to my ordination course. The contrast between the two was considerable. In the first were thousands of books ranging across pretty well any subject you'd like to think of. In the second case, we had just a few hundred books relevant to our specific studies. But the smallest and most precious library of all is the one we can all carry around with us. Yes, it's the Bible. It's not a book. It may be published as one volume and sold as a book, but in fact, it's a library of books. And these come in all types and sizes. Some are very obscure to us, at least. Some are positively offensive while others are just about the most inspiring things we'll ever have in our hands. When we consider where these many and diverse books came from, this is only what we'd expect. The Quran, in contrast, is said to have been dictated in Arabic to the Prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel early in the seventh century, or the Book of Mormon is claimed to have been revealed in an otherwise unknown language called Reformed Egyptian, and then miraculously translated into English in America in the 19th century. But the many books which make up our library, which we call the Bible, were mostly written in Hebrew or Greek and come from the pens of countless human writers in many different locations, spread over probably as many as 15 centuries. Not only that, but the decisions as to which books would be included and which omitted were made by many other different people in different places and at different times. Yet some believe that the entirety of our Bible is divinely and uniformly inspired, the whole process infallibly guided by the Holy Spirit. This raises the whole question of how we're to understand inspiration. How is it conveyed and how is it received? It's one thing to suppose that God, as the inspirer, is without fault or error. But it's quite another to suggest that everyone being inspired is similarly endowed. That hardly describes human nature as we know it. Careful reading of the texts that have come down to us, many of them in multiple and varied manuscripts, reveals frequent signs of human error. And even when this is conceded, it still leaves us with a question of human fallibility that each reader brings to it. What's beyond doubt or debate is that no single part of our biblical library was written in or for the 21st century. It's not good enough simply to say that every part expresses eternal truth and is relevant to every age and place. On the contrary, every part reflects to a later, lesser or greater extent the time and circumstances in which it is composed. 
You only have to read, as some of us have done, all the Old Testament passages set for morning prayer in recent months. What mental contortions we should need to discern in many of them anything capable of setting us up to face the day ahead. Some of you may now, by now be questioning my fitness and authority to be a teacher from a Church of England pulpit. So I start my defence by recalling what the 39 Articles of Religion say about the Bible. I quote, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved by there, thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as a, an article of faith or thought to be requisite or necessary to salvation. I'm completely fine with that. It tells us that scripture contains everything that we need to accept so as to be saved. But what it clearly doesn't say is that we must accept without question the literal sense of everything we find there. That's just as well, because although I have the time to do so now, I could provide a great many examples where the Bible is at least inconsistent or actually contradicts itself. In other words, where the Bible bears all the signs that we would expect of something that has been passed down to us by a series of well-meaning but fallible human beings. I hope to reassure you by asking and trying to answer the question, why should we read the Bible anyway? Simply because, with all the generations who've gone before, we can discover there that in some mysterious way that we can't understand or explain, we can meet God. Or, to be more precise, God meets us. Or, to be even more precise, God meets us in the one sent to be Emmanuel, God with us none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why, when in spite of all the human imperfections that may hinder our encounter, the voice of God still has a power to reach us through the Bible and call us home. The two readings set for day, today may seem strangely chosen for Bible Sunday, but both contain a detail which is vital, a vital part of God's call. It's the use of the expression word. The author of the letter to the Colossians exhorts his listeners and readers to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We can be certain of one thing, he was not quoting Matthew's gospel, which had yet to be written. Here we heard Jesus say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Leaving aside for the moment how far we can accept the precise gospel accounts of what Jesus said, these are just two examples which show us how the early Christians had to come to view Jesus' words. They experienced them not as only expressing power, but actually exercising power, God's power. There are far too many instances to recall now, but remember Jesus' surprise at a Roman centurion's faith, such as he not found in anyone in Israel, Lord, only speak the word, and my servant will be healed. How many accounts of Jesus' healing involved no physical contact, but only his speaking of a word? And what's 
most striking is that Jesus' first hearer's reaction is that here is a man speaking with the very power of God. It was through God's word that all things were brought into being. Now in their hearing, they witness one whose word commands even the wind and the waves to obey. What sort of man is this? They ask themselves, and so must we. The number of references to the word or words of God in the Hebrew scriptures is massive. So we should hardly be surprised that St. John begins his gospel account of Jesus and his rescue mission among us by stating that in him, God's very word has come among us embodied in a human life. This leads to another question. In what sense is the Bible the word of God? The answer is offered in St. Paul's second surviving letter to the Christians in Corinth. He's been stretching human language to its limits as he tries to describe how God's mercy is made known to us. Paul concedes that the good news of God is veiled and that we have this treasure in clay jars. In other words, the transmission of God's message has to rely on imperfect means. To suggest otherwise is to reduce the process to little more than magic. In a remarkable book I'm reading just now, I read, the texts must speak to each generation and each individual anew, or else they cease to be either scripture or literature and become only markings on a page. Each generation looks for new meanings, reads with new sensitivity, and projects into the text new issues. Our Bible is a gift from God, a treasure house to explore. It's a place where we may seek and find Jesus and hear his voice speaking to us, not just to his earthly contemporaries, but to us with our very different concerns and fears. It gives us warnings, but it also offers us comfort and strength, if only we can learn to read it with our minds and souls open to receive what God is saying to us today. Loving Lord, as you reach out to us in words of love and power, help us to respond to your voice and receive with joy your gifts for us and all your people.